And we've been considering this, this parallel experience of, of the earthly reality of having a baby come into your home with Christmas. Because never was this more true than when a baby was born in a cave to this poor Jewish couple, Mary and Joseph, 2,000 years ago. Because this baby would not only just change the lives of his parents, but this baby will change the whole world. And we know this is to be true because this baby is the son of God. That's what the Bible says. That's what the history points to. And, of course, this baby came with a formal announcement from heaven to a band of lowly, poor shepherds. And this is, to their testimony, what they said they heard and saw. Now, why they would ever have any reason to make something up like this, I I don't know. But this is what their testimony is, that they saw an angel, they heard an angel, and this is what the angel said. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Well, I got a question for you. Was that angelic announcement accurate? I mean, did a Savior actually come into the world? Because if a Savior did actually come into the world, if God's own Son was sent to the earth in the form of a baby, then that should, that should change everything, right? It's not like that happens every day. I mean, if the birth of a regular old human being is such a huge deal, then clearly this baby who is the incarnate Son of God should not just be a blip on history, it should change everything. So what I want to do very quickly for just a, just a minute is to take a look at, at some of the things that have changed since Jesus Christ entered into the world scene 2,000 years ago. Yaroslav Pelikan is a, a history professor at Yale, and he once wrote these words. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of the Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Just think about that. Take a minute. Attempt, if you will, to imagine history for the last 2,000 years without Jesus Christ, without any of his influence, without any of his teachings or that of his followers. Can you imagine an alternative history? It'd be very, very difficult to do so because the fingerprints of Christ are on just about everything that we know and see in terms of culture and just the development of the human race over the past 2,000 years. For example, do you know where our calendar comes from? I mean, for centuries, really, before Christ, there was no calendar. Every civilization basically kept track of time based upon the year of the king. Uh, That's why Luke dates the birth narrative by saying, in the time of Herod, the king of Judea, in those days of Caesar Augustus, and later in chapter 3, he dates John the Baptist by saying, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, and so on. This is the way that every country kept track of time. was just, remember when so-and-so was king? It was like the 12th year that he was king, then that's what I'm talking about. And that's the way that, that history was spoken of. However, 600 years after the birth of Christ, 600 years after the birth of Christ, after Christ died and, and all of that, a Scythian monk living in Rome proposed a new system for reckoning history. His name was Dionysius Exegus, which is Dennis the Small. I like that. Uh, he suggested that the calendar be centered not on the pagan myth of when the Roman Empire was founded, 
but on the incarnation of the carpenter king. This penniless preacher from Nazareth, this man who never held an office, never wrote a book, never led an army, a man who lived only 33 years in a tiny, insignificant country that was occupied by the greatest empire ever in the history of the world, and then was crucified at the hands of that empire, this man, this monk, suggests we order all of history around his birth. And so you know, that's exactly what happened. From that time on, our calendar dates back to what? Before Christ and after Christ. You know, every time we look at the calendar, it gives a testimony. It's a theological statement. Jesus Christ is the center of history. Who was this guy? I mean, who is it that we center all of history around? To say, you know, before him and after him. And do you realize that every great influential person, leader, military general, everybody ever since Christ, their whole life has been accounted for by placing up against the time frame of Jesus Christ. For example, Nero, who is the great Caesar of the Roman Empire, who persecuted Christians by the hundreds, he would light them up for his his garden parties. He'd cover them in tar and light them up for luminaries in his garden parties. This man who thought he had such power over the Christians, guess what? He died in the year 68, the year of our Lord. That's how we remember him. Napoleon, who was once known as the emperor of the world, died in the year of our Lord, 1821. Joseph Stalin, the great Russian dictator, died in the year of our Lord, 1953. Every person here tonight will be remembered for a space of time held up against the backdrop of one single solitary life, that is Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, this this man, Jesus Christ, a, a carpenter. From Nazareth, a baby born in a cave. But, you know, according to the witness of the shepherds that's in the Bible, the centrality of Christ as the hinge of history should come as no surprise. They heard it straight from heaven. For unto you, unto you a Savior is born, and he is Christ the Lord. How else can you explain the influence of this poor man from this poor country if he wasn't actually the Son of God, the Savior of the world? And, you know, if you read your history, you will discover that the influence of Jesus Christ and his ragtag group of followers really accounts for the rise of of modern science, the whole idea of racial and gender equality, you know, just this this worldview that life is linear, the heart of education. Do you know where universities came from? Universities came from Christians, followers of Christ. They came from the church. Uh, The first was constructed in Paris in the 12th century, then Oxford, Cambridge, universities in Rome, Naples, Vienna, and Heidelberg. When the influence of Christ made its way across the Atlantic Ocean, Christians found at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, William & Mary, and Brown universities. Listen, Listen to this quote from a college handbook. Listen to this. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Guess what university that came from? Harvard, 1646. I'm not saying that 
you know, there would be no colleges or advanced education if it weren't for Jesus, but it just so happens that if you took Jesus Christ's picture out of the last 2,000 years, all of these universities that we just talked about wouldn't exist. You know, a lot of Christians have not represented Jesus Christ or his movement or his person very well at all. But you must ask yourself, who was this man, Jesus Christ? How is it that this life of this penniless carpenter, itinerant preacher from Nazareth, led to such sweeping influence then as it still does today? From the world of science, we hear uh, Dinesh D'Souza, one of our culture's most prominent voices. This is his quote. He says, science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history, in Europe, in the civilization called Christendom. That's not to say that science would have never emerged from another source. But it's just interesting to note that even organized science must give credence to the poor carpenter born in a cave. From the world of medicine, we hear from the philosopher Mark Nelson says, if you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. I mean, I could go on and on. I love this stuff. I just think it's amazing. There's a lot of information out there about the world-changing, world-shaping influence of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to stop here. I just want to say, for those of you interested in more examples of Christ's influence in history, I encourage you to read or download a sermon from John Ortberg named An Unimaginable World. And you can find that at Menlo Presbyterian Church's website. It's an amazing, uh, comprehensive look at that. So you think what you will of Jesus Christ, but no one can deny that his life has influenced and changed almost everything in, throughout the world in the past 2,000 years. If you were to actually extract his influence from the last 2,000 years of history, you'd have very little left to talk about. Now, let's bring this back to why does that matter tonight on Christmas Eve, right? See, the angel said something else that night to the poor shepherds. They actually sang it, and here are the words to their song. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So according to the angels, according to this testimony from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus Christ brings glory to God and peace to those living on the earth. This is really good news of great joy for all the people. So let me ask you something. Has the news of the Savior brought peace into your life? Has this Jesus Christ influenced your life with joy? How's your joy factor doing? I want you to think about that for a moment. Because, you know, the natural consequences of having a baby in the house, we were talking about that, sleepless nights, stained carpets, demoted pets, stinky trash cans, and, you know, that, that smile that you just can't wipe off your face. I mean, these, these realities are generally predictable because a baby changes everything in your house. You can't have a baby and stay the same as you were or live as you once did prior to be before that baby came. So, wouldn't it be safe to say that if Jesus Christ, the most dominant person in history, the greatest influencer of all of history, the one who we date our lives on, if that Jesus Christ is true, and you've encountered that truth, it should change your life just as a newborn baby would in your house. According to Gospel of Luke, the influence of Christ on your life and mine should be peace and joy. And you have to ask yourself, 
Has that happened? Is that happening? You know, there have been millions of testimonies throughout the last 2,000 years that, yes, Christ does bring peace and joy. Christ brings forgiveness. But many, no, not, not so much. And I, I suspect that there are people that walked in here tonight. And if I, if I just pulled you aside and said, do you feel the peace and joy of Christ in your life? You'd say, yeah, not, not really. So why is that? I'm going to suggest one of the reasons why that could be the reality in your life is because of this quote that we heard from C.S. Lewis last, last week. Very profound. Remember this? He says, if Christianity is false, it is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. You know, I have no doubt that, that there are many here tonight, many in our Covera site as you walked in the door. You know, you were thinking to yourself, eh, you know, the claims of Jesus Christ are moderately important. Ah, they may be true, they may not. You know, whatever. And then when the music begins playing and you see the kids and the preacher starts talking, maybe your mind turns for just a minute and you start thinking, you know, maybe, maybe these claims of Christ should have more than just a nominal place on, on my radar screen or in, in my life. But to see, the thing is, we live in a society that's very high tech, it's very isolated to some degree and, and pretty hostile towards organized religion. I mean, we hear these messages every day from, from our world. It says, religion is, is a greater source of evil than it is good. Religion is responsible for all the world's wars. Religion creates intolerance and bigotry. Religion is for the simple-minded and those who really can't just man up and look at the world as it actually is. Right? That, that's, that's kind of what we hear. And, and I'll say, you know what, to some degree... I think our culture's disdain for organized religion is somewhat warranted. I mean, there have been some pretty terrible things done under the religious umbrella. And, you know, actually, if you read the New Testament, <laughs> you'll discover that Jesus Christ, he didn't have a great love for organized religion either, especially the people leading it, which makes me a little uncomfortable. So, uh, but here's the thing. You writing off religion does not answer the ultimate question, does it? You're not actually dealing with who Jesus Christ was. So that's my question for you. Because if Jesus Christ actually is who he says he is, then according to the message here, that leads to peace on earth and joy for all of us. And so we have to come back and say, who was Jesus Christ? Is that a moderately important question? I don't think so. I mean, I think we need to account for his influence. Was he actually the son of God? Did he actually rise on the third day? Is Jesus Christ the savior of the world? I mean, that's important, right? And as we observed last week, a couple weeks over this series, you know, history would certainly suggest that Jesus Christ was no ordinary man. History, as we saw last week, produces multiple reliable sources to testify the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day after his public execution, the best, most documented event ever in ancient history. Millions of testimonies throughout the past 20 centuries would bear witness to this life-transforming influence of Christ. So once again, can I just ask you, who was Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ the Savior of the world? If that is true, has it brought peace and joy to your life? And if not, why not? Let me tell you why. Because as much as I love to talk about the historical evidence of Jesus Christ, and I mean, y'all picked up on it 
I love talking about this. It's just so compelling to me. But it's not enough. You see, history is not enough. Peace and joy do not come from historical accuracy. Peace and joy don't even come from theological accuracy. Peace and joy come from a relationship, most specifically a saving relationship. Listen to this quote from a Spanish author named Jose Ortega. This is very profound. He says, the man with the clear head is the man who frees himself from fantasy and looks life in the face, realizes that everything in it is problematic and feels himself lost. And this is the simple truth, that to live is to feel oneself lost. Whoever accepts this has already begun to find himself to be on firm ground. Instinctively, as do the shipwrecked, he will look around for something to cling, and that tragic, ruthless glance, absolutely sincere because it is a question of his salvation, will cause him to bring order to the chaos of his life. These are the only genuine ideas, the ideas of the shipwrecked. All the rest is rhetoric, posturing, farce. He who does not really feel himself lost is without remission. That is to say, he never finds himself, never comes up against his own reality. Let's just put all the conversation about religion and atheism and all that to the side for a moment. Ortega's point here is profound. What he's saying is this. The human condition is pretty messed up. Can I hear an amen? Would anybody disagree with that? You don't have to read the newspaper, but more than like two articles and you'll get that. Watch the evening news. Pay attention. You know, I mean, we can hide behind our religion. We can hide behind, uh, you know, all, all kinds of realities in our life. Our money. We can hide behind technologies, keep ourselves really distracted. Uh, you know, we can hide behind, you know, the pursuit of pleasure of things of this world. But at some point, when we've got to power off the technology, you know, when the music fades, when the money runs out, when we come off the drug-induced high, when we get into a fight with our spouse or our girlfriend or whatever, you know, we just kind of hit the wall. And what we discover is this. There's just a whole lot of pain out there. And as hard as I try, I hurt people. And people hurt me. There's just a lot of things in this world that are just wrong. I, I couldn't even tell you why they're wrong. I just know they're wrong. And when it's all said and done, if we really think about that long enough, Ortega's right. We just feel alone. We feel like we're drowning. You know what? There's not a person out there over the age of 25 or 30 that would ever deny that at some point in pretty much every given week, maybe at least once a month, it just hits you. The pain and the loneliness and the questions all throughout history, it's called the existential condition. And if that hits you at just the right time, you just want to be dead to escape the horror of it all. And this has been the story of people forever. This is the human condition. That's not religion. That's the existential human condition. Ask anyone. So Ortega says, the only ideas that really matter are what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about the fact that my boat has shipwrecked against the rocks of reality and I'm drowning here? What are we going to do about that? He says those ideas that have to do with salvation are the only genuine ideas. <laughs> now, another guy commenting on Ortega's quote here, Brennan Manning, once wrote something about Christmas in this concept of shipwreck, and I want to read it to you because I couldn't say it any better. 
He says this. He says, the shipwrecked at the stable are the poor in spirit who feel lost in the cosmos, adrift on the open sea, clinging with a life and death desperation to the one solitary plank. Finally, they are washed ashore and they make their way to the stable, stripped of the old spirit of possessiveness in regard to anything. The shipwrecked find it not only tacky, but utterly absurd to be caught up either in tinsel trees or in religious experiences like, doesn't going to church on Christmas make you feel good? They're not concerned with their own emotional security or any of the trinkets of creation. They have been saved, rescued, delivered from the waters of death, set free for a new shot at life. And at the stable, in a blinding moment of truth, they make the stunning discovery that Jesus is the plank of salvation they have been clinging to without ever knowing it. Friends, you can't care about a Savior until you recognize that you need one. You won't look desperately for a plank until your boat crashes against the rocks of life and you see no other boat around to save you. The baby in the manger won't change your life until you realize that the baby is yours. Jesus Christ is your solitary plank. He is your only hope. He is your Savior and Lord. If the joy and peace promised by the angels has not become your new transformed reality, it's not because the claims of Christianity are somehow historically invalid or untrue. History's not the problem. Religion's not the problem. The problem is simply this. You have yet to awaken to the brutal reality of your own condition. You have a sin-sick soul. And because you failed to accept that reality, you are yet to care deeply of those things which are of infinite importance. The Bible says it this way in John 1, 8 and 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. But for those who have discovered the dreadful darkness of their own condition, here's the testimony of millions. There is only one who saves. And his name is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ changes everything. He alone saves people from their sins. Listen, there is no other reasonable historical explanation for the sweeping influence of the carpenter king if he's not actually the savior of the world. Let me tell you something. If you've been shipwrecked in this life, you've lost your job, you've lost your marriage, you've lost your health, you've lost somebody who's close to you, you've actually experienced the pain of the, of the human condition, finding a plank is not a moderately important concept. That salvation is, is infinitely important. So I pray for you this evening that the glimmering lights and the stuffed stockings of this season will not mislead you into believing that the promise of a Savior is a moderately important concept to ponder. Life will all too soon reveal its treacherous predicament. And listen, when it does... Remember the plank. Remember the baby born in a cave. He is the savior of the world. To grab hold of that plank and find salvation, one need only call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Maybe you came in here tonight, and all, everyone's happy and joy in their Christmas clothes, and all the music is just irritating to you because your boat has recently crashed, and you are desperately eyes darting to and fro, looking for a plank. 
Let me lead you into the prayer of the shipwreck. It sounds something like this. God, I'm drowning. I am shipwrecked and I'm drowning. I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive me and cleanse me and save me. At this moment, I trust that you are who you say you are. I trust you as my only hope, my Savior, my God. Make me to be the type of person you created me to be. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You see, that prayer, that prayer has changed millions of lives. It's never too late. It's never too early. It's never the wrong time to care about genuine ideas, salvation or not. It's Christmas Eve, and the baby changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask, particularly for those tonight who came into this room broken and confused, as wonderful it is to have the kids close by, and we know there's going to be presents, and they're going to be so happy, but when the lights go off, we are alone, and we feel an emptiness that we cannot explain. The human condition presses up against us, and we see the darkness of our own soul. I pray for that person tonight, that they will cling upon this one solitary plank who is Jesus Christ, the only one who saves. His life has changed history. His influence is unmistakably found throughout all the creation. But his love is for the sinner. His love is for the shipwrecked. And I pray tonight that we will cling to him and that we will be changed by it, that we will receive this change and that we will live in gratitude to you and be agents of your glory throughout this world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.